we'll see how much we get through. Um, but in preparing this message, pretty much all of yesterday, um, it, I always have to kind of laugh because I always start the process and in my mind I feel like I have nothing to say. Like I don't know what I'm going to write, I don't know how I'm going to come up with enough material and then somehow by the end I always end up with too much material and I'm trying to figure out what I can cut out. So my hope is this morning that I will share with you what God wants you to hear and not just what I want to say. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity. Lord, to come into your presence, to feel your love and mercy once again. I pray that you would help us to be good stewards of your word. Lord, let our ears be open to hear what the Spirit is saying. Let our hearts be made good for the seed may fall on good ground and in due time bring forth fruit in your image. We thank you and give you all glory and all honor. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm just going to read a couple quick verses here before we get into this. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. Jump down to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gift, uh, gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. If you will allow me for a short time here, I want to talk to you on this simple topic, a gift fit for the king. A gift fit for the king. It's, honestly, it's kind of hard to believe that we are already one week away from Christmas. It, it seems to go by faster and faster the older you get. And for many, Christmas is one of those life events that produces memories that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Those memories can be good or bad, and may not even be what really happened. This Christmas, I, I have to admit, has been a little rough for me in comparison. Um, I, I've been a little burnt out trying to juggle working on my master's and working night shifts in the emergency room and trying to find time to connect with individuals within the church and writing sermons and preparing lessons and all the while trying to still be a good father and a good husband. Add to all of that stress that this holiday has been a little harder since my mom is no longer with me. Uh, recently, my wife and I got into a bit of a um, heated discussion uh, about Christmas. And over our almost 18 years of marriage, I have talked about Christmas a lot. My family and now my coworkers get annoyed because they always walk around the house singing Christmas music. Does not matter what month it is doesn't matter how hot it is, it's always time to sing Christmas tunes. And I, I hear this, this comment all the time at work, and it's like, Jeremy, it's not even close to Christmas. And my response is always the same, but it's always Christmas in my heart. I, I, I like the look that they get on their face, they roll their eyes, and like, really? But, you know, Christmas, it's one of those things that stand out because it's one of the few times of the year where family who who maybe live within miles of one another, but don't ever seem to find time to spend with one another, 
because of the busyness of work and school and all of the other things in life, Christmas is one of those few holidays where we will make the effort to be with one another. And, you know, throughout my years of talking about Christmas and memories, uh, one of the things that I have brought up numerous times um, to my wife and to my kids is that my mom, uh, growing up, used to have those small uh, porcelain houses or figures, basically like a, a miniature Christmas village. And every year she would take all of them out and put them in this nice uh, oak curio cabinet for everyone to be able to look at. And as a kid, I, I don't know why, I just always liked looking at these images and in my mind thinking what Christmas would be like to live in a winter wonderland. And I will tell you now that I've lived in the snow, I kind of regret wishing that so many times. But nonetheless, here we are. And after mentioning this over and over and over again, just, just in discussion and talk, uh, at any time, I could have gone out and bought some of those houses myself or could have done those things, but I liked the memory, but it wasn't quite enough to make me want to go and spend a bunch of money. Well, this year, my wife was, was thoughtful enough to uh, look online and find a, a, a huge set of these figurines and houses and scenes to put out in our living room for Christmas because she knew that, you know, with my mom not being here and, and being um, uh, separated from the rest of my family by great distances and knowing that it's not likely that I'm going to see them for this Christmas, she decided to bring a little bit of that into her home. Now, I should have been elated. I should have been over the moon happy and grateful for what my wife did. And, and don't mistake I am grateful, and I was in that moment, I was very grateful. Yet, despite this nice gesture, despite this thing that I've always talked about, but now I can see in tangible form, for some reason I could not bring a smile to my face. I could not allow myself to feel the joy that these thoughtful gifts should have brought me. Because... For me, Christmas was always about family. No matter how much dysfunction my family had, and no matter, no matter how poor we were, the, the fact that, you know, I remember as a kid, all of my presents came from uh, garage sales or from uh, donations to a local charity. We, we grew up very poor. Now, I don't want to say that as a way to say, woe is me, but when I look back on those moments, while I do remember those things, I also always remember that it was a time of the year that my family would always come together and we would cook and, and eat a great meal and we would play games. And for someone, I don't even like football pretty much at all, but I can remember every Christmas day sitting on the couch with my brothers watching football. I didn't sit there to watch the game. I sat there to be with my family. This holiday, I guess, in seeing those houses, while it should have made me extremely happy, was almost a reminder. It was a reminder of the Christmas of my past that I can never have again. At least this is what, in my mind, I kept telling myself. I began to think of all the things that I missed and wish I had, 
But in that moment, God pricked my heart. Because for all the time I spent looking at what I don't have, I failed to recognize all that I actually do have. I I failed to consider that I have a wife who is loving toward me. I have a wife who cares for our home and our children, who, who is passionate about ministry and passionate about pouring into others' lives. I have kids that constantly amaze me, that constantly make me so proud to be their dad. A week ago, I remember walking downstairs into the basement, and I was going to go into Caitlin's room and tell her something, but As I approached her doorframe, before she saw me, I heard Caitlin sitting on the bed with Isabel reading a devotion together. And as a dad, there was nothing more that I could ever want than for my kids to love the word. I want to talk to you just briefly about what can we this Christmas bring that is worthy to be given to the king of kings. You see, I thought that I knew what I wanted. I thought that I knew for sure what kind of gift I wanted this year. And yet, in reality, I didn't really know what it was that I wanted. And the truth is, we've all been there, right? We all have, have in our minds played up this thing, this, this technology, this toy, this book, this vacation, whatever it is. We, we've played it in our minds with such hope and longing, and then we get that thing, and it's like, eh, it wasn't really all I thought it was going to be. And unfortunately, it also happens in the other direction, where we get a gift for someone that in our minds we're thinking, oh, they are going to love this. They are going to be so happy and so thankful that I got them this gift. And then we give them the gift and they're like, oh, thanks. Where's the joy? Like, I thought for sure I knew what you wanted. If we as humans struggle to really know what it is that we want, or if we struggle to know what it is that others want, How can we expect to, from our own philosophy and our own thoughts and our own intellect, give a gift that God truly wants? It can't be a gift that just comes from us alone because we are flawed humans incapable of grasping the true magnificence of God. But to understand the gift that God wants. We, we really need to go back in time a little bit. And, and all good stories start at the beginning. Genesis 1 through 3 tells the story of how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and woman. He placed them in a perfect garden where they exercised dominion. Sadly, we know that it didn't take long in the story before man's idea of right and wrong caused a rift that would separate God and man for thousands of years. But God's abundant love and mercy planted the seed of redemption from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3.15 tells us that it would be the seed of a woman that would produce Salvation for their people. 
Now, before I go any further, I want you to understand that the entire purpose of the Bible, the entire purpose of all of Scripture can be found in these first couple chapters of Genesis. Now, am I in any way saying that we don't need the rest of Scripture? No, I'm not. But what I am saying is that the rest of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, deal with one singular theme. And that is the restoration of man back to relationship with God. Some people look at the Old Testament and see an angry God who only wanted to destroy people. And yet when I read the Old Testament, I read of, of, of a love that's so great that it continued to turn back to a people that hated God. I see a love that gave man chance after chance after chance despite their idolatry, despite their disobedience to the word of God. And yet, even still, God's love and mercy reached for mankind. You see, I will never stop singing about the grace of God. But I must warn you that many Christians have distorted the meaning of God's grace. They view God's grace as a tool to justify offering God less than their very best. Because after all, God's grace means it doesn't matter what type of gift I bring. We'll see if that's actually true. Look at Genesis chapter 4. And I'm just going to read a couple verses here, starting in verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she, be, she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground, and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the, of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Verse 4, and Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And thou shalt rule over him? Sorry, let's go back one to verse 7. If thou doest well, thou shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest well, sin, doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. In this first story, the first family, we see two brothers. Two brothers from the same family, under the same God, in the same circumstance. Both gave an offering to God. And an offering can be looked at as a gift. It is a gift from man as a gesture toward God. Both provided an offering, but only one offering was accepted. Now, if God's grace is such that he doesn't care what kind of gift we bring and doesn't really care what kind of offering we give, then why would God in this moment look to one brother and say, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. 
And in that moment of jealousy and anger, we know that Cain then slew his brother Abel. And you know, Scripture does not explicitly say what was wrong with Cain's offering. Now, in my humble opinion, I I believe verse 4 kind of gives us an inkling of what it is. Because it says that Cain gave an offering from his fruit. But it says that Abel gave of the firstling. Abel gave the very best of what he had in offering toward God. But it simply says that Cain just provided eh, something along the way. In Exodus chapter 12, we're going to look at this again. Because you see that from the beginning of man's attempt to rewrite God's word so that it fits them better... Man has tried to justify the offering they bring to God as being good enough because it came from their heart. And now we get to Exodus chapter 12, where the people of Israel have been in bondage and slavery for hundreds of years. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, and I'm going to skip a couple verses along the way for the sake of time. Picking up though here in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And God in this situation is telling Moses and Aaron, I remember the promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have also seen your plight and have prepared a way for you to be free from the yoke placed on you by the Egyptians. Verse 3, speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying in the tenth day of this month shall they take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two sides of the post and on the upper door post of the house wherein they shall eat it. Verse 11. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon your houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now pause here, but we're going to pick up in a minute in verse 21. But We need to see something that's very important that's happening here. Now, there are so, so, so many prophetic statements in this chapter alone about God's plan of redemption. There is so much in this passage here that discusses that it's the blood of a spotless lamb applied to a house that will stay the hand of death 
from the residents. But something else that is mentioned here is they're told they must stay within the house where the blood is applied. For if they were to leave the house that has the blood and the death angel were to pass by, they would find them in disobedience to God's word and they would be subject to the plague that God is bringing on Egypt. Church, you and I do not get to choose what is an acceptable lifestyle to God. You and I do not get to choose when it's okay to play church and when it's okay to be in the world. Because at some time, God is going to call you and I home, whether it is through death or the rapture. But if that calling goes forth and God finds you standing outside of the sanctity and the salvation of his blood, you will be subject to the same death of every other sinner out there. Now, we can look at this and be like, man, that's kind of harsh. Or we can look at this and say, man, God is good. Because, see, me inside of the house is still me. Me outside of the house is still me. The only thing that makes a difference between me in the house and outside the house is the blood of the lamb. You see, it isn't your perfection. It isn't your uh, amazing talent and money and skill that gives you protection. It is the blood of Christ applied to your life that will bring salvation. We do not get to choose what kind of offering God demands from us because we did not save ourselves and we did not create ourselves. Only God did. And therefore, he is the one who sets the rules on what is an acceptable gift for the king. Verse 21 says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out. And take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover, and ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. And it will not suffer the destroyer to come in into your house to smite you. Now, I don't want to get too far off track here, but we must remember that the thing that is stopping God's uh, judgment on mankind is his grace through the blood of the Lamb. In verse 35 it says, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. Jump down to verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 Years For 430 years, they waited for deliverance from their bondage. For 430 years, they heard the story 
passed down time and time again of a Messiah that would come and free them from the yoke of their oppressor. 430 years of longing and hope to finally be free from slavery. And now the time is upon them. Now God is bringing to pass the thing that they had heard for 430 years. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the Lord who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all children of Israel in their generations we started this chapter with the statement that this was going to be the first month from now on. That this now would be the defining moment that would be the beginning of a new time in Israel. It was the salvation brought through the Lamb that would now define what should happen from this point forward. And yet we know that it wasn't but a few short days when they come up to the riverbank. And now they see the enemy approaching from behind. And they see the water in front of them. And they begin to murmur and complain. And they say, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Remember, 430 years they waited for deliverance. They waited for a king. And God delivers on his word for them. He brings them out through the most miraculous thing any of them had ever seen. And yet it is but a few days and already they begin to question God. A few days and they look back to the hand that delivered them and said, well, you're just going to smite us here? And yet still God in his love and mercy said, I've got this. He parts the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. And now here they are on the other side of the bank. Where do we go from here? Are we just going to wander around aimlessly? And God again says, listen, I will provide for you. I will be a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke during the day. Why am I saying all of this? Remember, we are talking about a gift that is fit for the king. Israel at each turn, thought they could write what should be acceptable in the eyes of God. At each moment of difficulty, they thought they were the ones capable of defining what God's love and mercy should look like. But Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 20, tells us what God thought of their constant attempt to change God's word and law. Verse 20, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to test now these ten times. It's amazing. God provides ten plagues to deliver them. And yet after those ten plagues, Israel turns around and tests God Ten times. 
the God who brought about 10 of the most crazy things they had ever seen in their whole life was the same God that they then thought they could turn around and test God 10 times. And God says, yeah, you put me to the test these 10 times now and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. It matters what type of offering you bring to the king. It matters what type of gift you provide to the king of glory. That, that gift cannot be defined by you, but must be what is acceptable to him. Woven throughout all of the Old Testament is the promise of a Messiah that would deliver God's people and would rule with a rod of iron. The Jews were awaiting a king that would come and sit on the throne of Israel and defeat all of its enemies. Year after year, the scribes and Pharisees would read passages of scripture that foretold of a lion of the tribe of Judah coming to avenge his people. Now, to their credit, they did remember the exodus from Egypt and how that God delivered them to the land of promise. So surely they would have remembered that it was the blood of a spotless lamb that stayed the hand of death itself. And yet somehow, through all of the prophecies they learned and remembered about this king, they felt to look at Isaiah 7.14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. They fell to look in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They fell to heed Micah's warning in chapter 5 verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me. That is to be the ruler in Israel whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Hosea 11 and 1, they fell to remember that Hosea says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, which Jesus fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. An angel of the Lord appears to Joshua in a dream. Or to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take thy child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. But we know that once Herod was removed from the scene, God called his son out of the land of Egypt. Fulfilling what Hosea promised was going to happen. The nation of Israel spoke of this soon coming king for generations, but they decided to pick and choose what type of king they wanted to follow. Sadly, the king that they chose was not Jesus. We'll look at one final prophecy as we begin to bring this to a close here. A prophecy that is so plain that there is no way the Jewish elite could have possibly missed it. Numbers 24, starting in verse 15. 
So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam to the son of Baor, and the utterance of man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. So that what's being said up here, the writer is saying, listen, the person you are hearing from is someone who was spoken to by God himself. The person who is speaking to you is someone who knows what's going on. So surely they should listen to this man, right? But verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is why it is so amazing to me that in Matthew chapter 5, going back and we're going to start in verse 1, that when the exact thing happens that was prophesied of all of these scriptures, somehow they still did not recognize the king. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his Star. Exactly what was mentioned in Numbers, that a star would come out of Jacob. This was pro pro prophesying the coming king. So they, they ask Herod, where is this king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is an exact quote from what Micah prophesied was going to happen. And this is what I find so crazy in my own mind that for all of these generations, they have waited and taught in their synagogues and in the temples. They have, have, have brought up uh, young rabbis to follow in the feet of older teachers to remember the words of God. And yet now here we are, that three wise, well, wise men, sometimes there are things we remember as tradition that may or may not be actually what Scripture said, but what we see is wise men, they come, they're seeking a king. These wise men were not Jews. These wise men were Gentiles, which is super amazing because we always look at Jesus not being concerned about the Gentiles till later in Acts. And yet here at his very beginning, the birth of his physical life and ministry, we see already God drawing in Gentiles from other nations to worship him. They, these Gentiles, not raised with the Jewish scriptures, knew enough about prophecy to recognize where the king was going to be. And yet Herod, the king, the one who should know more about God than any other Jew in the land, when he hears this, he has to pull his people aside. What are they talking about? I don't, where, where's, what, Christ, where's that going to happen? 
And the response back to the king was, yeah, Micah talked about it. And they relayed the prophecy that Micah said, how that he would be born in Bethlehem. I think about this because what has God spoken in my life so plainly so many times? And yet because of my own selfishness or my own foolishness, I refuse to recognize. How many times in my life have I refused to recognize the hand of God trying to bring me in a direction that would be more pleasing to him? And more beneficial to his kingdom. But because in my own arrogance, I thought I knew what was right. I thought I knew what the king wanted. And yet, unfortunately, in the moment, I became like Herod. Thinking that I knew better than God himself. So we know the rest of the story that he tells the, the wise men, go. And when you find that, that, that child, come back and let me know so I can worship him. Of course, he had no desire to worship him. Scripture tells us he wanted to go and remove this threat to his kingdom. But six miles. Six miles is all that separated Herod from Jesus. Six short miles. That you could walk in less than half a day is all that stood between Herod, the king of the Jews, and the true king of Israel. But Herod could not be bothered to walk six short miles to see the long-awaited king. Church, this Christmas, I want us to go beyond just reading Luke and Matthew and recounting the story, I want us to begin to instill in our children that the God that was missed in the beginning will be the same God that is missed in the end if we do not watch and read the word. The same way that the Jews of the Old Testament missed the coming Messiah because they refused to look at God for who he was and only searched for who they wanted him to be. Let that not be our plight. Let that not be said of us that we serve the God we wanted to serve versus the God who deserved to be served. Let's all stand. I recently talked with Bishop a little while back after one of the messages I preached, and I'm sure that many of you have kind of noticed that over the past, I don't know, maybe three, four, five months, my teaching has, has in some ways become, I guess, a little heavier, a little more direct, a little, a little I don't want to say depressing because that is not what happens with the Word of God, but, but it is more blunt, it is more to the point. And I asked Pastor Powell, I was like, I don't know why I keep feeling so drawn by the Spirit of God to stand up there and to, to cry out a warning to his people. God, why can't I just come up here and preach a, a happy message about the power of God to let us live our best life? Trust me, I leave here and I'm like, man, they probably don't want to hear me preach again. They're probably tired of hearing me get up there and like tell them all of this heavy, deep stuff. 
And you know, Pastor Powell said something to me that, that, that has really, really stuck in my mind and that I've been thinking about for quite some time. He says that God will use you in differently in different seasons. And it doesn't change who you are, but it changes how God uses you. And in my mind, I look at the world around us and I see a level of insanity that I didn't even think was possible. It's gone away from just being like an atheist who's trying to use the scientific method to disprove God, but now we're expected to just believe a fairy tale, to believe in whatever people say that is real or not real. It doesn't matter that you can very plainly see that's not the truth, but if they think it's the truth, you have to be okay with that. How did we get here? How do we get to a place in which we cannot even acknowledge what is real and what is not without being called hateful? And I guess in my mind, I see this and my heart is broken. I, I get angry, I get frustrated, but more than anything, I weep for this world. Because God does not want anyone to go to hell. God didn't create hell for you or for me. He wants us to be in relationship with him. But if we are not careful, we will listen to the vain philosophy of this world. And before you know it, we will begin to serve another Jesus that is not mentioned in Scripture. We will begin to serve a God who only seeks to please others, but ignores the truth of God's word. So yes, I have been a little more direct. Yes, I have to ask God all the time, do you really want me to get up there and say that? But at the end of each message, I say, God, I, I get it. Your love for your people is so great that you will use whatever means necessary to help us to open our eyes and to see what is waiting for us, both good and bad. So this Christmas, don't be depressed. Don't look back in times past and, and mourn over what you've lost. Instead, be joyful. Because though this world is heading headlong into the fire, there is a God who still cares for you and me. And I will choose to worship Jesus for who he really is and not simply for who I want him to be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that your word is forever settled under heaven. I thank you that heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall not. Because it's in that word that you tell us that you will not leave us nor forsake us. It's in the word that has been forever established that says you have made intercession on our behalf. It's in that word that you have said your blood shall cover a multitude of our sins. Lord, help us to love that word, the true word, the eternal word. Not the words of the enemy or of this world that would seek to confuse us and blind us from reality. But help us to look with a joyful heart. 
That as we sing and hear on the radios, joy to the world, it is not just a tune, but it is a prophecy waiting for the returning king of glory. We give you all praise and adoration. So this Christmas, the gift that you have asked us to bring is us. Our hearts, our minds, and our wills. To seek you first in all things, to put aside the cares of the world, and to draw near unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>